Welcome to the Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Christopher Judd. Chris is CTO and partner at Manifest Solutions, author, Java user group leader, Java champion, trusted technical advisor, and talent developer. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me, gentlemen. So, Chris, we had you on about a thousand days ago, actually, uh, on the podcast. And uh, could you start this one off, uh, you know, just kind of giving us an update on what's been going on? I mean, there's been a lot that's happened in the last three, almost three years. And uh, so what's new with you? So um, probably one of the most exciting things is just shortly after we talked last time, I spoke at my 100th conference. So now quite a few more beyond that. and. The pandemic gave me the opportunity to learn how to do more training, conference speaking remotely. So that was a value add I did not expect from that experience. And I find myself today doing both training, customized training around AWS, as well as helping our clients work in an AWS environment. So that's pretty much what's new with me. Excellent, excellent. And we're primarily Azure folks, uh, the three of us at least, with with some experience in in other cloud vendors, so we can of course translate our knowledge and, and understanding of the Azure offerings to AWS. But what what do you what do you find interesting about the AWS landscape? Yeah, so I've been fortunate enough to use AWS almost since its infancy. When I started, there were only two services: it was S3 and EC2. So I've been around since for a long time and training on it for over ten years now. And so I've kind of grown up with it and it kind of feels at home. I also do run a couple workloads, Java workloads in Azure, uh, in the application services space. So I do have some experience with that too, but uh, AWS really feels at home for me. So um, it's been really exciting over the two decades to really watch it go from those two services to all these higher level services doing machine learning, containers, even satellite capabilities and services are available. So it's it's been really neat to just watch and experience all these different things and to see how much agility, flexibility we get from using these cloud services from what we did historically by running things on-premise. So with all the offerings that AWS has, um, if, uh, if um, one of our listeners was looking to get into uh, building a solution using AWS, what... Uh, what services should they actually look at? What are the ones that are probably the most valuable to learn first? Yeah, so it really depends on what you already have. Um, if you already have something running on-premise, sometimes it's easier to do a lift and shift and just go with an IS solution or an infrastructure-as-a-service solution. Um, but if you have some more flexibility and, and timing, uh, I can talk about a couple different services I think can be really valuable for that. And one I'd like to start with is uh, the cloud development kit. So a lot of times we talk about in the industry that we want to do infrastructure as code. And the cloud development kit or the CDK is one of those examples. Another common one people use is Terraform. 
which is an open source third party from HashiCorp. If you're going with AWS services by themselves, historically, people have used uh, CloudFormation. And CloudFormation is a good solution. But one of the challenges I found with CloudFormation is you define everything in both either a YAML file or a JSON file. And as they get to become more complex, they get really hard to manage. And, and variables inside of both YAML and inside of JSON can get really complex as well. So the Cloud Development Kit, what it provides for you is a way of generating those CloudFormation templates by writing in code. And so you can either choose languages like TypeScript as the default, but uh, JavaScript, you can use Go, Java, um, a couple other, uh, C Sharp, so languages like that. And you can write using constructs that we're used to in programming. You can do loops and you can have variables and make those variables easier to reuse. And then when you've defined that infrastructure the way you want it, you can then either synthesize those CloudFormation templates, which will give you the YAML or JSON file, and you can go review those and look at those underneath the covers. Or you can do a deploy, which will generate those for you, and then spin up a stack or stats, as well as uh, the resources associated with those. So your S3 buckets, your EC2 instances, your Docker containers, those types of things. And so it's a great way of orchestrating that infrastructure without having to deal with languages like JSON and YAML. And if you do like Terraform, which a lot of people do, they even provide a CDK for Terraform. So Terraform, you either use the um, HashiCorp configuration language or JSON, but instead, if you wanted to, you could use any one of those languages that the CDK does, and it will generate those same files for you underneath the covers and do the deployments of those for you. So you could use it in a cross vendor cross cloud type of way as well. It's not just tied to AWS at that point in time. How does that um, like tie into like a pipeline or something that gets like run with like code check-ins and all that sort of jazz? Yeah. So one of the nice things about these uh, files too, is it's, it doesn't tear down your infrastructure. It does a change set and gets the infrastructure up to a known place. So mm-hmm. some people like to version or create a CDK application, which has all that code in it for the orchestration in either the project or as a peer to your application project. And then um, as a part of your CI/CD pipeline, it can then execute those and you know get it up to that known state. So yeah, it can be incorporated with whatever pipelines you might be using today. This, this feels like... Um... Well, in my mind, I, I, I really, like maybe not all DevOps people would agree with with my non DevOps mind, but uh, this feels like a, a pretty significant step up from the uh, the services that are provided by Microsoft and Azure. In Azure, you have the the pipelines, which are normally done in YAML, and uh, you can you can switch over to something called Bicep, which is like a programmatic YAML almost, um, <laughs> but it's still. Uh, fairly clunky to deal with i feel and the versioning that you can get out of it like when you you can do a, a thing called a what if where it'll tell you uh if you were to run this against your system you'll get these differences we'll delete this resource we'll add these resources we'll modify these resources etc there is a c-sharp based programmatic way to do the same thing but it looking at the documentation it doesn't look like microsoft has spent a lot of time working on it 
I really like the way this cloud development kit sounds. Um, are there are there any gotchas? Is the documentation good? Is it hard to learn? What what um, what would somebody need to know about it or be prepared for when trying to learn this one? I think the documentation is uh, actually very good and very robust. And um, as far as infrastructure, too, you could deploy, you could create both your pipeline itself. So there is the AWS code pipeline and code builds. That might be one part of infrastructure you automate with the CDK, or it could be your production infrastructure as well. So whatever you need to orchestrate, uh, you could do that with the CDK. It would be it would be very similar to writing any type of application where you might want to uh, orchestrate this. So you're going to use your programming language. You're going to use the command line it provides to generate an application. Tell it what programming language. It's going to generate an application file and then a one stack. You can add more stats to that if you want. And inside that stack, you're going to say, I want, for example, an S3 bucket. What they provide is three layers of what they call um, constructs. And a construct I think of is nothing more than really a class or a template that then when you execute it is going to create the resources, which is your object. So you use the construct of an S3 to then create an S3 bucket, give it the properties you want to configure it. And then when you run it, you get the S3 bucket. And where those layers come in, they have layer one through layer three, comes in really handy. They have layer one, which is your cloud formation layer. And there's a direct one-to-one mapping between the TypeScript or whatever programming language construct and what the what their cloud formation would use. And so you could always go to cloud formation if it didn't provide what you need. The level two is a curated set of constructs. And here they've applied best practices to it. So this goes to your question about how easy is it well, if you want to get some of those best practices, you want a more simplified interface, you would use the curated ones. And I think that's what 90% of people are going to do unless they need to fall back for some reason to level one. And then finally, there's a level three, which are called or referred to as patterns. And these are aggregates of the level two. So if you wanted a more complex one that orchestrates maybe a load balancer with ECS and then um, green, blue deploy, They have constructs that have all those together. And then on top of it, they provide repositories of both constructs. So there's a construct hub where you can download constructs from either AWS or third parties. And then there's a pattern repository where you can get those aggregated ones and download those. So I think they've made it really easy and made it really easy to share those as well. So from the command line, instead of creating a CDK application, you could generate a CDK construct library and then produce the libraries and share that amongst your team or the rest of the world if you chose to how about moving from one construct to the other so like what if one thing you start with is is working well but then you come comes down the road and we want to add something that's either more complex situation maybe it doesn't a construct doesn't exist and you have to move fall back to like a level one like you were saying uh, is that difficult or like do uh, you have to start all over? In most cases, I think you're going to find it pretty easy move back and forth because there are some things that they haven't created curated ones for, so they have to work interchangeably. Um, but in some cases, the curated one might expect another curated object to be passed as a parameter. So you might want to 
stick with the curated one, but there are times that you'll have both. Uh, one common one is there is a, uh, all the curated ones are have a prefix of CFN. So you know that they are, sorry, not the curated ones. The cloud formation ones all start with a CFN. So you know that you are using a different layer in that scenario. And all the patterns have the name pattern. So you know you're using a pattern in that scenario. There are times, there are some things like CFN out, which is a way of providing information to their cloud formation dashboard that they did not create a curated one. And so you will use those interchangeably at times. Okay. And then what about um, also infrastructure that has already been developed uh, and maybe outside of the cloud development kit? Uh, can you like bring that in or import that in? Or, or is that like you have to start over? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, I have looked and I haven't seen anything that will take an existing CloudFormation uh, YAML or JSON and convert it back. Somebody might have a third-party library to do that, but I haven't found it yet. When you have a CloudFormation stack, they do provide that YAML. So if you wanted to use level one, I don't think it'd be that difficult to look at the JSON and say, okay, I would set these same properties, but in a TypeScript object. So I, I depending on how large it is, it may or may not take time. Now, one of the thing, other things that you find, it, especially in the curated ones, if you need to use an object that was created outside, so maybe you have an S3 bucket that was created outside, there are lookup methods. So you could go find it, usually by name or an ARN, which is the Amazon resource number, or a um, maybe an ID. So some objects have IDs. It's a little inconsistent versus the type of resource of whether it uses an ARN ID or a name. But you can look those up too. So you don't have to necessarily have everything created with inside of that that script. Is there any time when you're looking at a brand new solution and you would say, no, I don't I don't want to go this route because it seems like a pretty good route? Uh, the only time I can think of is if you know that you're going to do multi-cloud. And in that case, if you still want to use a CDK, you could use it with HashiCorp's Terraform. But you might not want to tie yourself to AWS if you know or have high likelihood of going multi-cloud or maybe even on-premise. If you have a lot of stuff on-premise that also needs to be done, you might want to keep it in some type of consistent language or framework. So what are some of the other essential solutions in AWS that folks might want to explore or might need to be familiar with or, or want to look into? So last time we talked, we talked about serverless in AWS. And um, one of the things we talked about was lambdas. But I want to bring lambdas up again because I just keep finding how useful they are in so many different scenarios. The last time we talked, we talked about it mostly as far as a microservice application delivery. Um, but there are so many other uses for them. And so lambdas are a serverless event-driven compute service. And so therefore, you're going to write a function, so it's a function as a service, you're going to write a function in your programming language of choice, and they offer a wide variety from JavaScript, Java, Python, C Sharp, Go, Ruby, and you are going to then configure it to listen for an event. And there's a whole host of events. So messaging events like SQS and SNS, so message queues and message topics. Uh, monitoring, so that could be from CloudWatch or EventBridge. And that gives you the ability to, um, CloudWatch is used for logging. So as log messages come in, you have a regular expression that says, when this happens, fire off an event. 
or cron jobs for EventBridge as well that you can say, I want this to happen every day or at a certain point in time or every 15 minutes, and that can fire off an event. The SDK, so you could programmatically invoke it, or maybe you want to tie it to one of the resources like an S3 bucket, DynamoDB, or Kinesis. So when data comes into any one of those sources, that can happen. And a very common one, the one that we talked about last time, is the API gateway. So if you want to expose those functions as a microservice using REST or WebSockets, uh, you can put an API gateway in front of it. That will trigger an event. And one of the other ones that's a, kind of fun uh, is the Alexa applications. So if you have an Alexa and you say, hey, Alexa, that is often triggering behind the scenes one of these lambdas. And so there's a wide variety of things you can do with it. Microservices, like I mentioned, if you wanted to have a mobile backend, any event-driven application based on messaging. Uh, ETL is a very common scenario. So oftentimes with large enterprises, instead of doing what we used to do with um, FTPs, you might put a file in a bucket and that could trigger an event. Why I'm bringing it up again is the orchestration of resources and services. So there's so many times where things are happening in your infrastructure. Maybe there's an alert and you want to notify people via text messaging or uh, you want it to auto scale something. So increase the number of items in the load balancer. Well, you can orchestrate all of those types of details by using these lambdas and writing very simple code to orchestrate it. And they provide a lot of tooling around it too to make it easier uh, to write these types of applications. They provide the SAM framework or the serverless application model. And it does something similar to the CDK in that you build the application, there's a simplified YAML file that goes along with it, and you can have it generate then more complex cloud formation templates. So you don't have to build the big, ugly ones. You can build much more um, focused ones for Lambda applications or serverless applications in general. That can be very nice. And with that, you can initialize a serverless application. You can validate it to make sure that you have all the required fields and everything. You can build it, which is going to produce a, re a deployable artifact if you want to. And then you can run it locally, which is a really nice advantage. So instead of having to deploy everything to AWS and say, does my function work now? You can run it right on your machine, send it the event data. I forgot to mention, each event has different payload of data comes in as a JSON object. And then if you have a stackly type language, it can map to some object with the right uh, data binding. And so you can send it a payload of data when you're running it locally to test it out without going to the cloud. And you can even run an API gateway locally to see what does it look like over HTTP, um, which reduces the cycle time for testing. It also reduces the cost of both data transfer and running something in AWS. And then um, the deploy, you can say, okay, now deploy all those serverless, including my lambdas, and it will do all the wiring for the events and all the other configurations you would need for your application. I'm not really familiar with the lambdas, but they're very similar to like Azure Functions. And I'm just enamored by how much you can do with uh, this style of, of application uh, hosting. Are, are there any like solutions or uh, I guess maybe problem domains that you would say maybe aren't a good fit for this kind of a thing? Right. So I'm really here to promote the orchestration of 
Lambdas and all the resources that you have running in AWS. So for those, this is usually a great solution, but there are some limitations. For one is there is a maximum time of 15 minutes that any particular Lambda can run. And if it runs over that, um, AWS is going to kill it with reckless abandonment. And so you do need to be aware of that. Uh, it can be a little complex if you have a lot of these little services running, trying to do a workflow, but they do provide services for tracing this, calling or using a service called Etsray. So you can trace all the routes through all of your lambdas and any other services it may be calling or orchestrating. Uh, so those are the two biggest limitations that I've uh, really seen with using lambdas. Yeah, the, the tracing sounds pretty fantastic. Um, I don't know that Microsoft has uh, something baked in just yet that that, that does that. Yeah, and they've recently made sure that the tracing also works with open telemetry. So if you have applications that have open telemetry, they can work uh, hand in hand and you can still do the tracing without having AWS specific libraries within your code base. What about if we wanted something a little larger, more more moving parts, more moving pieces? Is there something that, that would help us with some kind of like piecing together workflows, for example? Great question. The next topic I wanted to talk about was step functions. And step functions are a low-code visual workflow service that you can build distributed applications, automated IT, uh, business processes. So I kind of remember years ago when a lot of people were into business process management or BPM. So you could use it as a BPM type of solution. Building pipelines of data, like for machine learning or ETL, are great uses of step functions. and when I say that it's a visual workflow service, uh, you historically what you would do is you define that workflow in a JSON document, and then it would render a visualization of it, which would make it look very similar to a flowchart. And so the quote quote visual was just a rendering of it. But recently they've added a actual design editor, which is much more graphical in nature, and they give you a palette of all of the services that are available and you can drag and drop those in. They have a property editor where you can set those properties visually and it makes it much easier to use. So I did not really start adopting step functions back when it was the JSON because they got very complex very quick. It was very hard to, to navigate them. But now with that visual designer, I find it much easier to use. And one of those things you can orchestrate are lambdas. So if you had a bunch of lambdas or even you needed you had a you were orchestrating a lot of AWS services that already had capabilities built into step functions but then you got to some place where there was a gap you could write a lambda to fill that gap and have it execute whatever you needed to execute to to finish your workload. So it is a a really fantastic solution for doing that. There's two different types of step functions. There's the standard one um, which is interesting because it can run for up to one year. You might ask, well, why would it run for a year? Well, if you think about some workflows, maybe every month you're getting a, you know, you might send something to somebody and a month later you might get something back. So it can run for that length of time. The second one is an express, and these are usually used for more event-driven types of workloads. And they have a limitation of only running for a total of five minutes. And these step functions uh, can be thought of as a state machine. So 
like a typical state machine, only one step is active at a time, and you can visually watch it as it's executing. And between each of those steps is a transition. And part of that transition is JSON data going back and forth. So you have JSON as input to the step and JSON as output to the step. And inside the step, you can interrogate that data and add data to the payload to go to that next step. Yeah, looking at the the image on the documentation page for st- uh, AWS step functions, it looks like uh, in the design workflow, there's it looks like there's, there's a little start indicator uh, running into a Lambda function, running into glue, running into parallel state, into other run tasks. So, what are the what are the pieces that are available for for utilization in this? How do you, how do you wire everything up? Yeah, so wiring everything up is drag and drop. So you have all the resources on one tab and you have the workflows on the other one. So you can do decision-making trees, you can do parallel processing. It can also take care of retries for you. Um, I think I said parallelization before. Uh, You can have it then wait. We talked about maybe waiting for a month for the next step. And so those are the types of things that you can build visually as a part of that workflow. They also provide a really, really handy data flow simulator. So it can sometimes be get a little complicated in, okay, here's the data coming in. I want to pull pieces of that out. Then what that service is returning, and then I want to add data to the output. So they do provide a really nice data flow simulator to help that as well, um, which takes advantage of a step definition language. So it helps walk you through what the options are in that step definition language to help you write those uh, transformations a little bit better. It looks like there's there's also the opportunity to have human interaction within your pattern, within the pattern or within the workflow. So normally where we might have an application broken into multiple disparate applications that just wait for inputs and outputs or or events or messaging or something, then this is all kind of baked in together as a single workflow. Yeah, you could definitely do that. So imagine you had your um, step function deploy your application for you, but you wanted to make sure somebody approved it before it deployed. You could define all that in your step function, have that wait till a human interaction, they click the button, and then it actually deploys it to production. If you're doing ETL, maybe somebody does a quick review to make sure the file looks good before it processes, then a human can say, yep, continue processing it. What about containers? What what's the the story with containers for working with AWS these days? Yeah, so containers are so important to modern development. Makes it much easier to do that lift and shift or to uh, move to other operational environments. So AWS is a great place to do that. I think I've counted at least seven different ways of deploying containers to AWS. I'm not recommending them all, but there are some that I do highly recommend. You do always have the availability to do it yourself. So you can use uh, infrastructure as a service as a solution, IaaS. So you could spin up your own EC2 instances, virtual machines. You could install install Kubernetes or Docker on those and make sure that, and do all the, that yourself and do all the patches and things like that. But they offer a better solution. They offer both Elastic Container Service, ECS, and Elastic Kubernetes Service. So if you've been deploying stuff using the Docker Compose type of method, I think you're going to find the uh, Elastic Container Service a very good solution for you. 
If you are a Kubernetes person and you're used to deploying stuff via Kubernetes and using uh, their scripts, that's an option as well. And one of the things that they have underneath their covers is they use Fargate as a platform, as a service to help simplify that. So up until recently, uh, there was you had to know a little bit more about what's running underneath their covers. I, I would say there's a leaky abstraction, right? You know their EC2 instances. You have to tell it how many EC2 instances you want running, what size they were. And if you wanted to scale up, you could hit that potential limit. Well, now with Fargate underneath their covers, you basically say, here's my containers. This container might use this much CPU, this much memory. And it takes care of a lot of the details of managing that cluster on your behalf, which is really great. And I'll also mention this week they announced they've provided Fargate for EMR. So EMR is the Hadoop solution, the Elastic Map Reduce solution. And so just like with container services, you had to manage how many EC2 instances were running inside of your cluster. Now with EMR, you don't have to do that anymore. You say, I want this type of workload, and it will scale it up and scale it down to meet those needs on your behalf. So going back to containers, um, with the ECS, you would, which is the one I use most often, I find it a lot easier to manage and get my head around than the complexity of Kubernetes. You would create a task definition, which looks very similar to a Docker Compose file. So you say what containers are a part of it, what ports need to be exposed, the environment variables, the CPU memory for them. So you define that task and then you um, create either a service or a task. And a service is a long running task. So think of like a web server, microservice you want running all the time, where a true task is one that will start up and shut down. So usually it's more batch oriented. And then AWS makes this very easy to even make really complex solutions even doing blue-green deployments for you by generating a load balancer, target groups within there that then the load balancer can point to, which will be pointed to different versions of your applications uh, in each target group. So as you deploy one, it would deploy to one target group. And when that was done deploying, it would point the load balancer. And they support different deployment types like canary, uh, linear, and all-at-once types of deployments. And should one of those fail, so let's say you do a canary where you send 10% of the traffic to the new one, if that fails, then it will automatically roll it back. So they've simplified a lot of those solutions for you. Yeah, we're all quite familiar with containerizing our applications, and and Ash has significantly more experience with Kubernetes than Clayton or I. Anything that the cloud vendors can ease the burden of managing Kubernetes is is better for the developers, in, in my estimation. You yourself even said that you usually go to ECS as well, right out of the bat. So when when do you decide or when do you choose to go straight to containers or choose the complexity of an, a container orchestration? ECS and EKS or um, container orchestration, the difference to me is if you are already using Kubernetes and you already have Kubernetes scripts, then I would definitely point you to EKS. If this is your first time going in and you don't have any of that stuff, I think you're going to find it much easier. And I've had several clients, this is our first time orchestrating something like this in their cloud who tried EKS, realize EKS isn't the challenge, it's Kubernetes itself, and then have said, okay, 
let's go with something we we can manage and we can get our head around, which has been the EKS. So they they both will orchestrate a full application, deploy them. It's just different ways of doing that. One of the beauties we, we, we talked about last time was microservices. And one of the beauties of microservices is that you can split workloads into you know the specific kind of compute that they're looking for. So things like uh, you know just serving up the front end could be very, very lightweight because it's just running maybe Nginx or you know something very lightweight to serve up static uh, files. But you know other backend or APIs might have some much heavier compute um, needed. One of the challenging things, it's it's still like it's doable in in Kubernetes, but it's just very challenging is to like get the proper segmentation. Um, it can be very challenging for people who haven't who are not familiar with the, the setting up all the workloads and setting up pools to handle those different workloads and making sure that the right pods spin up in the right pools and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm guessing e- ECS handles that for you in, in a much better way. And, and do, can they do things more than just like size of compute? But what about like GPU utilization? So I would rather have GPU resources as opposed to CPU resources. Does it handle that sort of situation? So as far as um, the different types of CPUs, if you're using Fargate, the limitation is, okay, here's the memory, here is the um, CPU that you want. If you want to do non-Fargate, so you want to have a little bit more control of that infrastructure, they do give you a long list of the different EC2 types of instances to run on, and some of those are GPU-oriented ones. So you do have that flexibility. Okay, so you could you could kind of fall back to that intermediate space um, as, as you need it. That's pretty sweet. The sooner you can get people uh, from a, uh, from a developer's perspective, like out of having to learn and manage that that infrastructure and, and utilizing it, the, the better. Absolutely. So we've talked about containers and we've talked about lambdas. Do you have a sense of when you might use one versus the other? You know, if you already have an application that is containerized, that is without the doubt the easiest decision to make. Keep them in the containers. If you want to be able to do um, larger scale and more of what we did on-premise and you want to have be able to run the whole infrastructure potentially locally for development testing purposes containers also make a great solution if you have smaller applications or you're orchestrating the aws services or you don't really need a server running all the other all the time another great use of lambdas would be hey i have this workload that only happens once a month you don't need to have a server sitting there running for that once a month type of activity, then um, Lambdas are, are definitely a great choice. And then beyond that, I think you'd have to really look at exactly what you're doing. Uh, I've talked to people who have taken applications that were you know, a large complex application for a media site. They then convert it to Lambdas, serverless technologies, DynamoDB, static websites, and they get a huge performance gain as well as a big cost savings but that was a complete rewrite you're not going to lift and shift your application to lambdas so you do have to plan either building it from scratch in that way or a rewrite but then i've also had clients that thought they were going to go all lambda and rewrite their erp solution and they ran into much more expensive 
than they thought because they didn't think about the fact all your developers were to have to run in their cloud. They only did pricing around production and they none of them had ever deployed anything to Lambdas before. So they ran into a, a lot of challenges they did not expect. So you need to be prepared if you're going to go to that route. So if you already have an application, containers, I would say, is the way to go. If you're thinking about building something new, then um, I would suggest let's talk and we can decide whether Lambdas make sense for you or, or not in that scenario. So what else? What have we maybe missed in part of our conversation or what have we glossed over or what else? What are the other solutions that folks should be looking at or looking for on AWS? Sure. So I think one of the things that AWS is really starting to provide is for those larger companies, they're providing a lot of governance types of services and service catalogs and service mapping so that you can do things at larger scales uh, across a lot of applications, across a lot of uh, work streams. So if you're a large organization, you might want to start looking at how can you take advantage of that within your organization as well so that you don't keep rebuilding things like your application monitoring. Uh, you could have a service catalog item for uh, Prometheus, for example, and if somebody needs it, they just say, I need that monitoring capability, and now it's available in their account, and they do a little bit of configuration, and it's off and running. So they've componentized really large, complex solutions uh, rather nicely. Probably one of my favorite resources, too, is in AWS, they have the architecture and the well-architected framework. As a part of that, they have um, reference implementations, which I love. It's a set of documentations. And if you've ever seen an architecture kata or been a part of one before, and they give you an architectural challenge, and you have to say, this is how I would architect it, and then people review it, I kind of think of these architecture reference diagrams in that same way, where you go look at them, and there are different industries, different technologies. So you can look at architecture in a space that you don't use every day. So like some of them are around the gaming space. Well, I don't develop um, multi-user gaming cloud solutions. So it's kind of interesting to see how might somebody build something like that. So it's a great learning resource that I think everyone should look at. And about every six months, I go, look, what else is new there? And they provide a diagram and how that maps to all of the AWS resources. But even if you're not using AWS, you could mentally map you know, a DNS solution or a virtual machine solution to whatever cloud or on-premise solution you're doing. That's super cool. So speaking of resources, uh, for someone who's, you know, AWS illiterate like myself, do you have any place that you would point me to or my, our listeners to to say, hey, I'd like to get started? Um, where's the where's the best way? Yeah, I think the best way is dots.aws.amazon.com. Uh, that is a link to all the documentation that they have. And then they also have um, workshops.aws provides a lot of hands-on workshops that you could go through, tutorials that are at all different levels using all different resources and services that AWS provides. And of course, if you're looking for customized training, Manifest is more than happy to help provide that as well. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? Yeah, so I'll specifically talk about AWS. Uh, I think it's really important that if you are jumping into AWS and you're using these higher level services that we're talking about, you really take a little bit of time and understand the fundamental services um, underneath the covers. 
there are leaky abstractions. There are hiding more of those leaky abstractions, but when you need to debug something and something's not working right, or when you do run across those leaky abstractions, knowing those fundamentals help. So to me, those are things like the IAM, which is our identity management, and then how to configure policies and debug policies when you're getting a permission denied. Uh, VPCs, which is their virtual private network solution. EC2, which is the virtual machines. Security groups, which is the firewall rules that prevent things from talking to each other. Uh, things like load balancers, because even though you might have ECS create the load balancer for you, if all of a sudden your health chat doesn't work, and then associated with the load balancers, target groups can be helpful. So learning those foundational services, I think, makes it so much easier. Where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? So you can go to judsolutions.com. Uh, that's my website. And then you can follow me on Twitter at Java Judd. You might see a lot of posts related to track and field because I am a high school track and field coach. I coach the throwers, but I do like and I send out uh, things related to technology as well. Fantastic. Chris, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, it's been a, a great pleasure getting the chance to, to catch up with you and, and see what you're continuing to, to work on and, and continuing to, to grow and progress and share your knowledge with the community. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I listen to it all the time. And so thanks for continuing to provide great episodes so I can keep up to date, especially on uh, .NET technologies and other technologies I might not be using every day. That was Christopher Judd, Chris's CTO and partner at Manifest Solutions, author, Java user group leader, Java champion, trusted technical advisor, and talent developer. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at sixfiguredev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. <laughs>